Welcome to this Law & Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law & Sport. Today's guest is Dr. Kelsey Erickson, who is a research fellow at Leeds Beckett University. Uh, her primary research interest is in social psychology of doping in sport, which, as many of you know, is, a, is an interest of mine. Um, I'm delighted she's been able to come down, well, you're in London anyway, but be able to pop by uh, to do the podcast. Um, you've been doing a, a whole host of different research in relation to doping, and you've done uh, been funded by uh, and worked with uh, organisations such as WADA, the UK Military of Defence, which I thought was super interesting, I'd love to hear more about that, um, the UK Anti-Doping, uh, the International Olympic Committee, and uh, a whole bunch of other organisations, and also looking at the student-athlete, both in the UK uh, and the US. Obviously, I've done my research, you'll be glad to know. Very nice. <laughs> Impressive. Thank you. Uh, so thanks for joining me. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Um, we bumped into each other. We know each other anyway from Twitter, but we bumped into each other at the um, International Sports or the ASA International Sports Law Journal Conference. Uh, was it earlier in the year? I'm losing track of time. Was yeah, it the end of October. last year? October. October yeah. of last year. Um, and you were presenting your research paper. Um, I wondered if you could talk about that. I found it fascinating at the time we had a conversation over coffee, and this is what I wanted to sort of really get into today in terms of you know, where you started from when you started to have an interest in uh, the psychology of doping and, and kind of what your views are now and, and what, what, what the change of approach has been. Okay, this could be very long. I'll try <laughs> to keep it concise. Uh, really, I came at it and it kind of how my whole research portfolio has just built off where I started. But I was a student athlete in the US and the UK. Uh, undergrad in the U.S., master's program in the U.K., and I had a really different experience of being a student athlete in those two kind of contexts. One was very competitive, and in the U.K., it was a little bit different. And what, what was your sport? I played basketball in the U.S. and volleyball in the U.K., so I actually switched, with which I think speaks to the difference in level. Uh, you know, I stepped into volleyball after seven years of not playing and very quickly started on the team. Um, and it was a great experience, but it was much more social. And I had come from a very um, kind of professional environment in the US as a student athlete. And so it got me interested in kind of what might be temptation points or risk factors, if you will, for doping. And might that be, might there be differences across national borders, even at the student athlete level? And so as a master's research project. I kind of just looked at generically at risk and protective factors for doping, but that led me into my PhD where I looked specifically at kind of the university context in the US and the UK to see how that influenced student athletes and their views and behaviors towards doping. Kind of fast forward three years, uh, but in the midst of that project, one of the things that came out of it was this recognition that the majority, so I interviewed 28 student athletes, 14 from the US, 14 from the UK, uh, sport of track and field. And one of the things that came out of it was that the vast majority of them, 27 out of 28, said they would never be interested in doping. Personally, they, that was not something that they would ever do. And they had a number of different reasons for that. But one of the questions I asked them later on was, if you knew that a teammate or competitor was doping, would you report them? And you know, given that all but one were adamantly opposed to doping, I naively assumed that the answer to that question would be yes. You know, If you're against doping personally, then surely you would report somebody else for doping because you don't want doping in sport. But I was surprised to find that less than half of those participants said that they would report. And of those, even fewer suggested actual reporting through kind of formal means like a report doping hotline, uh, more often saying they go to a coach or someone of that nature. So essentially somebody that could keep that information in-house. So they're doing enough, but they're not having to report, report somebody. And so me, uh, during my PhD at that time, I was just, I was really wrestling with how could that be the case? How could they be so against doping and yet not feel responsible or obligated to report? And actually, at that point, I kind of put myself back in the position of being a student athlete, asked myself that question and realized that I probably wouldn't report either. And why? Because I started thinking about my friends who are my teammates. Uh, I started thinking about, you know, I had a scholarship and if I reported, would that come back on me? Could I get punished? Would anybody even care? A, a number of different reasons. So, so it's a cost benefit analysis. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, do I want to be responsible for that, you know, 18 to 21 year old in the U.S.? Uh, you know, do I want to be responsible for their career coming to an end at that age? And 
yeah, so I, I recognized that I too wasn't sure if I would report. And that was really the kind of what launched my interest in this idea of whistleblowing. Because on the one hand, I think it's really important. And I think that, yes, we should uh, be encouraging it and supporting it. But on the other hand, I don't think we can do that without acknowledging how big of a deal it is if we really stop and think about it. And so kind of from that research, I, I then did a f have now and am currently doing full-time focus on whistleblowing research. So really trying to understand, you know, we're, we're encouraging people to blow the whistle. We're creating all these platforms for them to do it, which is great. But at the end of the day, no matter how great our resources are, if people aren't willing to use them, they're useless. And so that's where I'm at at the moment now is going back to the stakeholders, the stakeholders being the athletes and the coaches who are ultimately being asked to use these resources and finding out, you know, would you report? And if not, why wouldn't you? And actually, should that be where we're focusing our attention at the moment on the reasons not to and trying to overcome those or at least start by saying, you know, we understand that this is a huge ask. And so here's what we're doing to try and make it not easier, but maybe less intimidating. So that's, that's really interesting. Uh, I did a I did a lecture the other day and I did uh, some role playing, and uh, basically made it around match fixing. Now someone being approached to match fixing, and to fast forward a long story, um, it echoes what you're saying, which was uh, I created this environment where people took up these uh, different positions at different organisations, and the athletes were involved as well. And what was fascinating was basically the, the certain party was like, look, we want to come forward, we want to do something, but we need these certain certain number of assurances before we were to do it. Mm -hmm. And they weren't, they are what you could imagine, but they weren't necessarily the ones that you think would be the primary concern at the time, unless you, you know, you're experienced in the sector. You just think, well, hold on, you've got a confidential whistleblowing line, why are you not going to come forward, right? But there were certain things about, you know, how is it going to harm my economic interests, uh, am I going to get a license revoked? Am I going to the political aspect to it? Is mm -hmm. this going to cause some political unrest? Is it? Am I going to be able to re-identify it? Um, and I do think it's interesting because also in the current anti-doping system, and I, and I say this to people all the time, is that um, say for example sports like athletics, people will tell you all the time, both athletes, um, administrators of sport, uh, director level as well as like, sort of lower down, will tell you that they know who the dodgy third parties are uh, coaches or or sports scientists who uh, and i say dodgy quote unquote dodgy um this is say uh those that they believe are encouraging athletes to dope um and to to, to, to be involved in unethical sort of conduct and yet nothing, it seems very little is being done about it mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I, and I think that's one of the things that if I was an athlete and thinking, am I going to whistleblow and think, well, the people I'm going to whistleblow and I've been around, everyone knows it. Like, yeah, if, if it's already a, a, like a known unknown, if you see what I mean, yeah. like everyone knows who the people are, but yeah. they, well, they're not getting addressed. They're not getting, sorry, um, sanctioned in any way. And they're still going to be participating in the sport. It's going to like make life super difficult for me, particularly if they're influential in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, what, what? Is your primary then objective in terms of, you know, the researcher at the moment, what is the impact you would like it to have? Yeah, I think there's a number of different things we're aiming for. I mean, on a practical level, it's creating a whistleblowing policy and framework within sport that clearly outlines what is available to whistleblowers. And there is, you know, the World Anti-Doping Agency has a policy in place now, um, but we're looking to kind of inform that more directly with the voices of that's athletes a, and coaches. That speak up. So that's their platform, but then they also have a whistleblowing policy right. that runs alongside that. So it essentially says how someone can become a whistleblower and then what what are the rights that they have available to them. Um, but, you know, first of all, not a lot of people know about it. Yeah. And so that is something that we need to address. Uh, but really, we're looking to try and change the culture around whistleblowing. So exactly as you said, people know. We know people know, but we also know that a lot of people aren't going to do anything about that. And unless we change the culture around that, it's not going to change. And what's your view on them? Uh, so I, I, I have huge issues with the, with, the, with the term, the use of the term performance enhancing. Because mm -hmm. right? I think that from a sports science perspective, from a performance perspective, right, everything you're doing, from a business perspective, on a day-to-day -day basis, I want to improve what I do. I want to improve how I function as a CEO. I want to improve how I function as a lecturer, whatever I do, as a 
as a rubbish athlete, <laughs> you know. Uh, there, I always live in hope that I'm going to improve my performance or whatever yeah. I'm doing, right? But that's what I'm going to target to, whether it's getting more sleep, better nutrition, etc. So I take huge, huge issue with the fact that we still use this term so broadly, and, and even the term doper. So mm-hmm. you can get, you know, labelled as a doper um, forever, and forevermore you'll be a doper for an administrative, a series of administrative yep. errors. Um, does that pose a problem in the sense that, you know, how much confidence do some of these parties actually have in the system itself? Uh, so, so there's an assumption you think that, that, that and we were just talking about this on the way down, that, that um, there's an assumption that all the athletes buy into the, and all the coaches buy into the system. And then in theory, you go, are we all up for, um, uh, are we all uh, vested in having a, a fairer or fair as possible sport? Right? We, we've got this, I don't believe in this equal playing field anyway because yeah. it yeah. doesn't stand up to much scrutiny. If you live in Kenya or Algeria or wherever and then you compete yeah. against people in the UK, there's a vast difference of resources or the US. But does that view of, do we have any understanding of what the actual true view is? I don't mean a view that is taken by people with vested interests but what the true view is of the, that current system because if I was going to whistleblow I would only want it to whistleblow if I actually believed in the system that I was whistleblowing for so for example it, it, I can imagine it getting a murky world where you go oh you know whether it is uh, the asthma inhalers or something mm-hmm. like that and they know that everyone else is doing it you know are you going to be one to speak up you probably go no well, that's just the norm of the sport and it becomes it becomes more difficult yeah. Well, it's interesting because I, you know, I, when I first came into the field of doping, I had a very black and white view on it. And very quickly I realized that, you know, the use of these drugs and supplements and, um, substances and methods is very complex. And I naively, again, when I came into the area of whistleblowing, came at it with like, Oh, I think maybe we finally found like a black and white area in this context of like, obviously you need to report. And once again, very quickly, I realized that, again, it's very complex and it's not black and white. And I think when you talk about the system, it's almost two questions there. Because first, there's trust in the system that, you know, doping testing is going to reveal anybody that's doping. And so therefore, I don't need to do anything because they're eventually going to get caught anyways. So I don't need to report. But then you also have to think about the whistleblowing system. And they're wondering, if I report, is anyone going to do anything? And if I don't, think 100% that they're going to do something, why would I even bother putting in the effort and the time and risking my reputation and this, that, and the other to report? But even taking a step back from that, I think one of the most interesting things that I'm finding at the moment, and I'm talking to international, mainly Olympic level coaches and athletes, is they don't even know where to go with that information. And I think that's particularly true at the international level, because let's say you're competing in track and field, you're from the UK, but you're competing at an event in I'm just going to pick a random one, let's say Poland, and you notice someone doping who's from China. I literally just picking random places. But so who do I go to in that situation? Do I go to UCAD because I'm a British athlete? Do I go to the IAAF because it's athletics? Do I go to WADA because now they have a platform? Do I go to the Polish anti Is yeah, is there maybe an independent yeah. testing body that's there at the competition? And so really, like we're, I think we've created some really good platforms across the anti-doping context, but we need to go way back to the very beginning and say, what do people know about whistleblowing? Even the term whistleblower, as I'm interviewing people, they don't even know what that means. But I'll go back and say, like, uh, you know, we've, uh, I'll give you an example, Andrew Steele uh, got his medal from Beijing Games from the relay, 400 meter relay. And um, I think it was 400, 400 meter hurdles. Apologies, Andrew, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the, um, and he was on the doping panel. He was like, look, I didn't know anything about it. I went through the education, but I don't really understand yep. it, if I'm being honest with you. And I, I argue this all the time. I say, give me 100 athletes from around the world and get them to properly articulate the world into doping code, the best educated in the yep. world. I'll, I'll be surprised if you give me five. Yep. I'll be surprised if you give me two that can really, truly articulate it well. And I think that's a huge problem in itself in terms of, uh, you know, one of the key points of having any good regulation is that the people that, meant to be bound by that regulation should be able to understand it yep. and so we've got that there's, there's a point of uh who do i go to because which is confusing and again at our conference our annual conference two years ago we had a um uh, a gb athlete who said exactly that question i could see him in the front row and we had uh olivia nickley from wada mm-hmm. um Gemma collis para yep. para um fencer um medal winner 
uh, normal aim for USA Chuckle Field. Anyway, Cass, uh, right? So there's this, this, this steam panel and Marjolaine Verrett, who you know, right? And uh, we're sitting there, and I had a really discussion. It was a very enlightening discussion. And um, the I could see this guy in the front row boiling up, basically. And I said to him, well, would you like to ask a question because you look frustrated? And he was, a, a, as an athlete, coming to the end of his, his, his competitive career. And he was like, look, I listen to people talk, but who do I report? If I see something going mm-hmm. on, who do I report to? Now, he went through the UCAD education program. And now, UCAD's widely recognised as one of the best national anti-doping organisations in the world. And I thought to myself, wow, that's a, that is a huge problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all, the, all the mechanisms in the world. But if we've got someone who's gone through one of the best education programmes in the world at this space, and he still isn't clear. And I thought that strikes me a difference between edu- true education as opposed to just putting out information. Yep. No, and that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I spoke to somebody recently who at an international event, the president of the Federation, and I'll keep it to itself just to be respectful, yeah. but uh, the president of the Federation came in before the championship started and basically gave this spiel about how it's so important to report and at no point actually said how to do it. Yeah. And so this athlete was saying to me, yeah, actually, you know, I had, we had this conversation and I was like, okay, and where did they signpost you? And, they, and she goes, actually, they didn't. So like, I know it's important, but I don't know how to do it. And it's not just athletes, it's coaches. And, and that's a, you know, that's where we really need to take some steps forward. Uh, if the last thing that somebody needs who's considering reporting is any barriers. And if there's, there's obviously going to be barriers, but the more that we can minimize those, the better. And a very simple starting point is not just making them aware of what's available and who to go to, but how to go to those sources. How do you use them? What might be the benefit of going anonymous versus confidential? What are the limitations, the strengths of those approaches? You know, do I go by email? Should I have a phone call? All those things. And, and, and also, I guess, would, it, would one of those factors also be then uh, what they're doing with that information? So, so for example, shift the shift between, and which I do think, again, we've got a problem with the, actually understanding the whole system itself, yep. which is complex, as you said earlier, which is you know, much more complex than people realise, mm-hmm. I think, than most people realise, because they assume the science is, is, is hugely accurate and there's no mm-hmm. debate over that, which is clearly not. Yep. And they assume that the regulations are, are clear and concise and there's not much... Like unless you're in the our, you know, little bubble yep. in our academia, researching in, it every uh, day, or, yeah, yeah, or in or in law, uh, you know, specifically in in that space, you again you make these assumptions that, that, that it's not under scrutiny. Yet the best people, best minds in the world can't agree on it. Yep. Uh, so 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 we so we we've got that. Then um, understand. Yeah. So is there an issue as well then? So within that education program, so you've got how's my information going to be used, and how does it? As part of that, is it how it fits into the system in terms of when, where, how would an investigation run, yep. and then reinforcement that there is actually an outcome, whether it's whether it's you're notified that nothing's going to happen because of it, or it's been kept on file. I should imagine that's to build up trust. Some so there has to be some mechanism there. Yeah, I mean, you say that, but the reality is that in a lot of systems there aren't. And so one of the things that we've just done in a project that we're doing is we've audited all the available whistleblowing platforms in U.S. and U.K. sports. Um, Summer Olympics, Winter Olympics, all the NATOs, and then all of the IFs in the UK and the US. So basically just kind of did an audit of what's publicly available, what are the platforms, how do you use them, what are the protections, this, that, and the other. And there's massive inconsistencies across them. There's a lack of clarity. And we've now sent it back to those, well, just the NATOs, we've sent it back to just to ask them, hey, can you confirm, yay or nay, this is an accurate representation of what you have. And even that in and of itself has been really interesting because I've had some of them come back and say, you know, we've noted like one thing we know is that if the website says it's secure or insecure in the browser, which the whole world can see, that's, you know, nothing special. And so, you know, one auto came back and said, I don't understand why you say it's not labeled as secure. And I said, oh, you know, if you look on your browser, yeah, it it literally says not secure. And so they came back to me and they're like, oh, that's really worrying because then, you know, under the rules and, and the outline, it says everything's confidential. You'll never be identified. But but the first thing these people see is it's not secure. Uh, and that, and Comes that's, up with a Google warning. Yeah, do and it does. Right and so that's something that we've been noting. Yeah. So just these inconsistencies and really thinking about what's the message that you're sending to people. If the first thing I see is not secure, that's probably going to cause me to, to second guess it. But going back to something else you said about how's my information going to be used. Another thing we really need to talk about is what information is good to share. And I think 
from what I'm gathering from a lot of people I've been speaking to is there's an assumption that, you know, you only come forward and report if you've basically witnessed it with your own eyes, taken a picture, that person that's doping has walked up to you and said, I'm doing this, this, and this, and these are the dates and times. And unless I have that much information, I'm not going to come forward. And so there's, there's an, a need to kind of clarify, no, actually, you never know when that little piece of information might be the last piece in a bigger puzzle mm. that of an ongoing investigation that's been going on from lots of other people. And, and so kind of encouraging that idea of there are ways that you can do this without having to put your name next to it. And that little piece of information might be the last little piece that we've been waiting for to kind of finalize this picture. And, and so really it's, it's yeah, what because well, that could strike an invest that could sorry sorry that could uh, be the, the the thing that flags up something needs to be investigated further yep. because uh, you know depending on the, how the, the framework they're using for managing the intelligence yeah or it could be that you know ten other people have come forward and reported something to do with this person but they, there's just something missing and that little thing you saw was that last piece um, so really it's coming back to education and we need to start with providing education on what's available how to use it when to use it and like you said what can you expect. Mm -hmm. Um, to happen if and when you do come forward. And so th that, that seems like there's a lot of work there to be done. Yeah. <laughs> um, and some of this is, you know, I think I always sort of caveat a lot of the criticisms I label out because I think it's difficult. It's a difficult environment to work in still. And I think that, you know, while some sports organisations have huge resources, many of them don't. Yep. <laughs> and they've got competing pressures and it's easy to, you know, I'm mindful because I'm, I'm probably hypercritical of people sometimes, uh, or not people, but organisations, um, but I do acknowledge that, uh, you know, not living their life, right? Yep. So, so on a day-to-day -day basis, they may have a whole bunch of other pressures. They're worried about their, maybe their job, how their performance is being related. And I guess that's one of the, the challenges as well, right? How do we make sure that it's a bit like with the athletes and player development, sorry, coaches and player development, right? That, that, that one of their... Um, performance criteria is on that they're investing time and allowing players to do the, the sort of the personal development side of things. Yep. The same in these organisations that they have to make sure that there's enough time for them for their staff to be actually to do undertake some of these projects and do the more reflective stuff rather than just being so process driven. Um, so acknowledging all of that, but one of the challenges would be would be for me, and this is an issue both like what we talked about earlier with match fixing, doping, the child abuse stuff that's going on. It's just a lack of governance or, or, or failures of governance. And that, so you can have a great whistleblowing policy, but if I don't believe or, or trust the officials and how they're elected, are they really representing my view or the staff members who work at that organisation? I'm still not going to, even with, even if you addressed all the points that you're trying to do globally, um, I'm still not going to, as an athlete or a coach or other party, I'm not going to come forward. Mm -hmm. how do, how do, what, 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 how <laughs> Given what, what you, obviously your objectives are, how do you tackle that, or what adjustments do you make, or you know, what's your view on it? Are you just going to be, you know, try and do your discrete thing, and then just hope the rest sorts out, or does it does it does it become a um, an influencing factor? Yeah, no, it's a, a good and very big question. I mean, I think. I guess for me, and I and these th things kind of go hand in hand. So on the one hand, I'm doing this whistleblowing project, and we're looking to create an evidence-based whistleblowing policy. But on the other, at the same time, alongside this, I have designed and am delivering an anti-doping education program for student athletes called REACT, and it stands for Recognize and Take Action. And essentially what we're doing through that is trying to create a community-based approach to anti-doping where we're equipping individuals to take personal responsibility in the context of clean sport. And really it's empowering individuals to take personal responsibility for their role, whether they're an athlete, sport personnel, coach, whatever it may be, helping them see that they can do something in the pursuit of clean sport. And it might not always be whistleblowing because the reality is not everyone's going to be willing to do that, regardless of what the wrongdoing is, whether it's doping or anything else. Not everyone's going to have, for a number of different reasons, they're not going to end up blowing the whistle. However, they can do something. And so through React, what we're doing, and this goes back to what you're saying you did in your lecture, um, we're teaching them to overcome the bystander effect, which I'll we can talk about at another time. Um, but essentially it's helping, we're trying to go recognize the fact that the bystander effect suggests that the more people that are present in a situation, the less personal responsibility any one individual will take. It's commonly used in their context of like domestic violence and social or sexual assault. We've adopted it into the context of sport and we're trying to help them recognize that, you know, sport largely you're gonna have people around you. But if we assume somebody else is going to take action, in the end, if we all make that assumption, there's a real possibility nobody does. 
So we want them to recognize that, no, actually, I have a role to play. And so one of the things that we do with them is they actually practice um, confronting different situations and scenarios that we give them, getting them thinking about what would you do in the situation mm -hmm. of somebody using this, that, or the other. And so they're actually really having to stop and think about it in that, this moment. And is that how you you address the uh, bystander effect? Is that is that is that the, the most effective way to address that? So we make them aware of it and then we go through, there's five steps towards um, intervention. So they get exposed to that. And then at the end, the final step is to step in and intervene. And so then we're giving them actual skills and tools to be able to intervene. And we're based on the research, uh, the whistleblowing research that I did during my PhD, confrontation is one of the things that student athletes said they'd be willing to do and that they'd feel comfortable doing. And so we actually practice that. Yeah. Uh, but translating that, I can stop there if you want, but no, 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 no. the reason why I'm I'm contemplating about other areas of sports law where I feel that there is um, areas where the bystander effect is so, so there's in law is super interesting in the sense that the responsibility that lawyers have to their clients. Mm -hmm. But here I, I I get increasingly frustrated uh, both through through the content that we publish sometimes, uh, uh, the content that I consume, and going to events and conferences, and knowing that people are acting for clients yep. or um, parties, and particularly in the case of, of uh, football, and I deal a lot of stuff with young players, uh, where they're being, in my view, um, taken advantage of by agents, uh, particularly when they're, they're less educated mm -hmm. of them, uh, you know, because they're seeing so single-minded in their career. And yet there's so many people who I think could, one, highlight that issue, take action mm -hmm. to address that issue, who don't. And I know there is a client confidentiality and client privilege point, uh, which I, I recognise and understand. But I also think that there is, there may be anyway, uh, this bystander effect that there's so many that they go, oh, everyone know, everyone else is aware of it, and everyone else is, but no one's actually doing much about it. Yeah. Um, now there are parties addressing like FIFA Pro and others, and then UEFA looking at this at the moment. But I do find it fascinating because, from my perspective, obviously. I'm not advising any clients, so I've got, I'm, I'm out of it in the yeah. sense that I can yeah. I can focus on it. But I also think, you know, how do we? And that's why I'm interested in terms of how do you address that point? Because yep. I think individually, if I speak to the people individually, they are all um, frustrated about the situation, and they've and, and I, I always question why is why is more not happening then. Yeah, well, and that's one of the things that we're doing with this is recognizing. So essentially, the bystander effect would say that the more people, well, it's, the more people are present, less responsibility any one individual takes. And we recognize that group norms and group behavior can make it really intimidating to speak out and you know go against the norm. But what we're trying to do is flip that upside down and say, actually, there's strength in numbers. And so if we make it the expectation that we're going to step in and do something, if we make it the norm that within this context, so whether that's my team, my university, my club, my law firm, whatever it is, the expectation is that we're going to step in. Then when I do, I know and I can trust that the people around me are going to support me in that and back me up rather than condemn me and look down on me. And I, and that's where it translates directly into this idea of whistleblowing is we want to create that expectation and that norm and that culture where this becomes celebrated. And that's where I think we're really lacking at the moment. And one of the things, you know, interesting timing of today is Icarus has just got an Oscar. So it gets Icarus gets an Oscar and it's dedicated to the whistleblower. And this is something completely outside of sport where an organization is saying this is a big deal. And yet we look at what's going on in sport and we see that whistleblowers are being excluded and condemned and punished. And on the, at the same time, we're trying to encourage people to come forward. And I think that's, you know, until we get to the point where whistleblowers are celebrated and where we're, we're focused on the message and not the messenger. And we see whistleblowing as solving a problem rather than creating a problem is not going to change. And so that's really what we're trying to do in this space is actually the message is what's important. It's not who said it. It's not how it got there. I mean, it should be. We should be celebrating them. But I think it's going to be a while before we get to that point. But we need to see this as an incredible avenue for bringing forward information that wasn't there before. And if, if we go to that to the governance side of it, it's the same thing. There needs to be personal responsibility there. And there needs to be an expectation. And then there needs to be clear accountability for that expectation. And again, not doping related, but one of the things that's been standing out to me a lot in the past couple of weeks and I keep coming back to is, I don't know if you followed at all, um, the situation going on at Michigan State with the U.S. gymnastics and sexual assault and uh, Dr. Nasser. but one of the, the quotes that I keep seeing in my head is, 
I believe it was the president of the university at the time or president of athletics or something. He basically said, you know, in 2014, we got this report that there was inappropriate behavior. So I sat down with Dr. or I sat down with Dr. Nasser and, and we spoke and I said to him, okay, moving forward, you're not going to do any procedures without gloves and you're not going to do any procedures without anyone in the room. Handshake, good, we're good to go. And literally in this quote, he goes, but no, I never followed up on it and I never planned to. Not good. And, yeah. and this is something that somebody's yeah. saying publicly. And to me, that's just crazy. Like yeah. we need to have accountability and there needs to be a clear process and punishment and consequences when that's not being and, upheld. And, and do you think in that sort of situation as well, that, that our, our better understanding of, of basically institutional biases in, and, in, and uh, using Brendan Schwab's quote, like institution, yeah, he was one who flagged it to me, like institutional thinking, um, and our own, you know, unintended biases and, and so forth is, is helping us to identify the where we should have checks and balances in place. Because really, in my mind, during that situation, he shouldn't have been, if that was the, the issue that was flagged up, that individual, uh, the organisation, has got a slight conflict there. Yep. So he, he's not going to be in a position... Uh, he puts himself at risk of not making the best decision. Yeah. Right? And so therefore, they're in better getting an independent person to look into the matter. Yeah. And that's a problem with sport is there's always going to be those conflicts of interest. And that just makes it that much more important that we have that independent perspective. We have somebody that we can go to for that accountability. And, and do you think in sport, and, and I think in law we have this problem, and I think in sport as well, the the narrative around, well, I want to pick up on something about clean sport. I don't. I personally don't like the clean sport narrative, but because uh, I don't think it, it reflects the reality of sport. But yep. the... Um, uh, makes it can make it unhelpful, and I think the IOC and the and the uh, think they cause a problem for themselves because they purport to have certain values, which I I always say that are aspirational as opposed to their Realistic. innate. You yeah. know, like in the sense that, that everyone says things to think that sport has this innate value, and I think undoubtedly, um, I think Deborah Healy talks about this in in uh, the book that she did with uh, Uric Hass. I think she did articulate it really well. I'd recommend that to anyone. Um, who's interested in this space so to read that I said uh, I really do think it was good and she was saying that, that and I'd agree with her on this point that we've some of the the, the the negative outcomes that we've had from the wilder cover has been because we've had these sort of aspirational values that we say are innate within sport and therefore leads us to build these unrealistic uh, regulations that don't really deal with the reality and taking that a step further in sports governance that the the, the prestige around being a president of an IF or part of the IOC has been the fact that they almost become godlike mm-hmm. in their approach, and therefore any mission of failure is a weakness rather than dealing with the reality. And I think there's been a shift at Wada, which I think has been an unhelpful shift in the over the last few years. Whereas I think before there was a bit, I think a more realistic uh, identification of, of the limitations of the whole program. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and I feel that we've moved to this point of you know the Russian situation being a prime example. Where it's like, oh, we've got this great system; it works. And it's like, oh no, there's a massive gaping hole in this system. So rather than coming out and saying it's a perfect system, which like say Dr. Rabin, I credit him at Wada for saying that. You know, he says it's an imperfect system. Well, just acknowledge that and explain the difficulties of it, which means you're going to get better outcomes rather than um, basically be in denial that the fact that you know you've got this perfect governance model and and, yep. then, and then it becomes easier for you to actually admit when there's a failing and yeah. address it proactively rather than um, yeah. try to avoid it. Well, I think transparency would change everything. And that's transparency on all different levels. Transparency about weaknesses, transparency about strengths, sharing best practice, You know, what is best practice, whether it's whistleblowing or... Uh, the testing system or whatever it may be, you know, just being transparent about what's worked, what hasn't, and how do we then move forward? And do, do you think uh, if people come out with public statements that, that you know, because everyone's playing the PR, not everyone, always a sweeping generalisation, yeah. but that, um, uh, often the PR agencies or, or the, the PR person within an organisation may come out and take an approach of being, you know, offensive, Right, and trying to make a positive message, which I understand from their, their, their organisation perspective. But do you think that if they come out, ha- does it? Is there any science around, given your psychology background, around if you come out and make these statements, that it's hard to retract from that statement? So if you say something that is, you know, a really bold, positive statement, and the reality doesn't resemble that, does it then create a position for you where you now can't change your stance? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't really have any strong scientific evidence for this, but I think, I mean, when I say transparent, it doesn't necessarily have to be positive. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, at least for me and from my perspective, if, if whether it's an IF or an NGB or 
a club, it doesn't matter. If they were willing to just say, look, we failed in this area, we made this mistake, or we didn't think about this ahead of time, people are gonna be more sympathetic and understanding mm -hmm. of that than if we continue to say, we're dealing with, we, you know, we've addressed this, or it's that person's fault, putting blame on other people. If people would take personal responsibility, and again, that goes back to this idea of react and whistleblowing and all mm -hmm. of it, is just saying, no, like actually, I have a part to play in this, mm -hmm. and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take ownership of that. It's the extreme ownership, you know, the uh, life, Life Gobbin, is it? Life Gobbin, Life Gabin, Gabin. The Navy SEAL wrote a book. Um, Life's, uh, trying to think what the guy's names are now. The Navy SEALs wrote a book called Extreme Ownership, mm. and they talk about that in terms of taking responsibility. That you know, it's easy to blame other people, but Absolutely. if you really want to fix the problem, you have to at least acknowledge your part in that. Yeah. Um, no, that's super interesting. And so. What does the future hold for you and what would you like to see over in an ideal world? Oh boy, so like many things. Yeah. Uh, my main focus at the moment is the whistleblowing side of it. So I want to gather more and more voices from athletes and coaches. And so one of the, I've got a paper under submission right now, which I'm excited about. That's basically I interviewed three individuals who have blown the whistle and they just sat and told me what their experience was. There was tears in some situations. There was frustration. There was anger. There's a lot of swear words in the paper directly from their mouths. Um, of just, this is what the process has been like for me. Like, this is the reality. And I think one of the things that really comes out of it is the process of whistleblowing. It's not as simple as I saw something, I reported it and it ended. I mean, for some of these people, I'm interviewing them years after they reported and they're crying about it because it's affecting them on a daily basis now. And so I think that's like my, my heart behind this and, and my drive and motivation behind it is raising voices of people that haven't had their voices raises raises <laughs> raised or for whatever reason haven't felt that they could um and so that's one big thing and and making sure those voices are embedded and i think you know in the context of anti-doping where we generally have to be reactive just because of how fast things move but i think on the whistleblowing front we have an opportunity to not necessarily be proactive because it's a little late for that but we have an opportunity to create an evidence-based platform uh, and policy and we don't get those opportunities very much in anti-doping or in sport in general, like where we could actually say, no, from we're going to do this evidence-based from the onset mm -hmm. rather than throw something out there and then recognize it's weak and then go back and start over. Uh, and so that's my big thing right now is the, let's do it right from the front. Let's get voices and experiences and insights and opinions from, from various people. Let's look at what's already out there. So one of the things we've done is looked at um, like the business world, what have they done? You know, they've yeah. got decades of experience in supporting and enabling whistleblowing. Well, Anthony Hooper did the, um, you if you, read, if you read it, but like, yeah, he did the NHS yep. uh, whistleblowing review. Yeah, so healthcare, we've looked at yeah. them, uh, pilots, airlines, they've done, I mean, there's decades and decades of research in whistleblowing in the broader public's area. If you look at within anti-doping in sport, and even just whistleblowing in sport more broadly, there's probably about 10 to 15 in general, there's two in doping. And yet it's this global conversation of like, we need to do it the right way, but we don't even know what that looks like. So that's, that's my thing on that. And then at the same time, it's the educating athletes. Our next step is coaches and support personnel, but not on here's what the rules are, but this is what it means to you in practice. So whether you're eight years old or 18 or 28 and on your way out, doping is a feature of sport and it's going to impact you. And so it's helping people to see that it's not okay actually to just say, yeah, great, you're not gonna use performance enhancing drugs. That's obviously a huge thing, but it's actually not enough for you to just do that and let other people do what they wanna do because some people are gonna end up doping. Yeah. So and actually- also, And also the size of- Count, so. Oh, no, no, you're fine. I was just trying to keep it because I, I apologize. This is an area that's close to my heart, so I'm getting yep. excited, overexcited. But the, um, uh, one of the challenges as well, there's an increasing number, I believe, anyway, maybe I'm wrong. I haven't got any evidence to really back up over that. I've got anecdotal evidence. But it seems to me there's an increasing number, or there will be an increasing number of people who never intended to dope who are also getting labelled as dopers because, mm -hmm. of, as some of the scientists at the Muckling Convention said, you know, the, 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 the tests are getting that. Um, uh, again, that sensitive mm -hmm. um, that the, literally the source could come from anywhere, and obviously yeah. the burden on the athlete to say where it came from yeah. can pose a particular headache, uh, particularly for the the, the the people I do feel sorry for the most in the whole system of the amateur athletes, the junior athletes, people who haven't got much money, finally find themselves part of this massive global system and not realizing what the hell's going on or 
And this is the one thing I don't think people understand is like how much, don't wrong, there are sophisticated dopers out there, and I, I am opposed to that, obviously. Um, I think they should be dealt with quite uh, severely. Um, but the, 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 the challenge is that you have on the other side of this, you have to be careful because, you know, I've, I've had Nardo say to me that 80% of their work is dealing with this sort of low-level dopers racing, essentially yep. what they're calling inadvertent, inadvertent dopers who are getting the two-month to a year sanction. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a, um, that, that, that concerns me. Yeah. Well, and I think what's, you know, one of the things, well, there's a number of things there, but I think, you know, one of the things that we're doing with the React side is that it's about moving it beyond just like, let's report or let's intervene or let's do something because of the band side of it, but actually let's think about them as a person. Mm. So let's think about their health. Let's think about their family. Let's think about their team. So it's not just like, let's report them because we want them to get sanctioned or let's report them because we don't want doping in sport. But even beyond that, of like just general well-being and caring about an individual, let's do something about this. And, you know, you're, you're touching on kind of the inadvertent side of it. Well, one of the, one of the big parts of, of the REACT education is we're talking about things like dietary supplements, not banned, certain ingredients are, but we need to recognize how risky there is and what are the risks. I acknowledge that some people are still going to use them. We're not going to, like, it'd be stupid to pretend that's yeah. not the case, but at least we can ma- help them make informed decisions. We talk about prescription medications. How many students, how many student athletes know that Adderall, Ritalin, Modafinil are banned? Mm. Very few. And when, you know, I've had, so I've delivered React to over 600 student athletes in the US, Canada, and the UK. There's probably out of those 600 plus, and I'm not kidding maybe 10 to 20 that have received anti-doping education beyond they've had to fill out an online form at the beginning of each year. So when you're sitting in, and I've delivered these in person, so I'm sat there having this conversation with them of how many of you guys know a team that's using painkillers? Do you know those are banned? How many of you guys know someone that's using Adderall? Do you know that it doesn't matter that if they're using it, if they're using it to do homework versus in sport? And, and it's helping them recognize that actually this, this matters to you mm-hmm. right now. And you have a role to play in this. And that education piece for me is really important, but I think we use the term education really loosely. And and again, that goes back. So my my passion behind the whistleblowing side is evidence-based whistleblowing. For me, that's the same with the education. What matters to them right now and how can we deliver this in a way that's of significance and of relevance and leaves them walking away, not going, okay, I know the rules, but actually I know why this matters. And I know what I can do in this. And I know what I'm going to do because I have a plan now of if and when I find myself in this situation, which most of them have. I mean, I look back on my own career and I had no idea that those things were doping. You know, if someone asked me, have you ever been around doping? My answer until I got into this field would, of course, been no. But now I look back and I go, oh, yeah, actually I have. Mm. But I just didn't know. And then you take that and look globally So as an American living in the UK and I'm delivering this education program across the US, Canada and the UK, well, the NCAA in the US, the um, university sport governing body, they're not water compliant. But in the UK and Canada, university sport is. So let's say a kid takes a steroid in the US, gets caught. Well, as a student athlete, his punishment is one year and nobody ever knows because they don't publish. That same age kid in the same sport in Canada or the UK takes that same drug, gets tested, they get a four-year ban, it's publicly announced forever, and the whole world knows. Yeah. And But a lot, not many people know no, that. Yeah. You know. This is, the, this is where I think the education part is so important, because I think if you can educate and bring the average up, right, uh, across the board, particularly, as I said, and this is the thing that, that I think often gets overlooked sometimes like the responsibility we have is to the, the, they said if we've got these rules in place that we should be educating people truly and not I don't like and I, and I, and I uh, really don't like the um, approach to having athlete friendly information because I think the information should be athlete friendly from the start as mm-hmm. opposed to you having to because it doesn't truly reflect what is going on you know yeah. it's, it's a poor substitute for really what's going on I know there's certain things you go oh I don't have to worry about this don't have to worry about that well, we've seen clearly with the Russian situation and others that if you just assume that everyone's doing what they should be doing then that, that, that may not happen right yeah. and so surely the best way is to to educate all the parties who are meant to be affected by it so they can be, become uh, one advocates of the system 
presuming it's a good system, yep. but also be the a check and balance to make sure yep. it is effective. Because as an example, if the athletes were aware that this is the case in America and the UK, and um, that they don't speak up. So for we did, you know, on the point of view, you did the research. We did research for two years, 2013, 2015 on the world, uh, all the Nardos around the world. And we, we, we did, I didn't know what to do with it, how to make it into anything sort of interesting to publish online. But I did it anyway. Um, and I think it was like less than 30% of the time back in this 2013 and then, and then same again 2015 actually linked to the Wilder Code mm-hmm. <laughs> itself um, only a few of them actually had the athlete friendly information TUE for I mean some really basic stuff and I thought whilst that doesn't mean they're not doing a lot of stuff themselves uh, separately you know that was only what was digitally present yep. I thought it was indicative of the professionalism of the organisations and I think that was again uh, we, we wrote to all the Nardos and said, look, if we've got this wrong, please let us know. Yep. Um, a few of them responded, a few of them didn't. But I thought that was indicative of, of, of what was happening on, on the ground. And I think, you know, given the, the in light of the recent scandals, that that was probably probably a, 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 an accurate reflection. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, if more people understood that and knew that, then they'd be more willing to challenge it. Whereas I feel like there's a, a narrative that goes out that... that is you know they've got this like robust system in place that's just perfect and and well thought out and the best legal minds have looked over it the best scientists have looked over it whereas uh, and even if you look at the um, laboratory standards that the fact if you're a wider scientist you can't come out and publicly criticize wider yep. which I understand the 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 reasoning behind that initially so you don't end up with yep. um, them going out and telling athletes or who want to dope where the weaknesses are. But also, I find it troubling in the sense that you don't see the imperfections that are in it. It's not publicly yep. known, and yep. therefore you don't get the best um, review process. So, do you think then at the moment, this moment in time, because we're thinking about doing something in this space to educate athletes around the, the world and doping code review that's taking place at yep. the moment, uh, are you doing anything proactive around that? Because it seems like there was an opportune time for athletes to really have a, a voice and coaches. Yep, I might add, or others for that matter, yeah. uh, to really have their voices heard and input into it and see what's actually going on. Uh, now would be a great time. Yeah, I mean, I think now would be a great time. I think our challenge would be the impending deadline. Yeah. Um, but I think if, in any way that we could, uh, that would certainly be the right way forward. I mean, just want, touching on something that you've just said there, I think the education side goes directly into the whistleblowing side as well in the sense that if they don't know what the rules are and if they don't know what is and isn't acceptable then they also don't feel confident that they could report anything. And another thing that's come out of the delivery of the education as well as the interviews specifically to whistleblowing is one of the things I'll ask is, you know, what's the definition of doping? And, you know, they'll throw out names, they'll throw out a couple substances, and then I go, do you know there's 10 ways? And we have this image that we've built of the 10 different ways. And, I mean, they're... And this isn't just athletes, it's coaches that go, holy cow. Mm. So, you know, when you ask them, would you report? The only thing that the majority of them thinking of is somebody actually taking that substance or using that method. Yeah, trafficking it, possessing it, getting like, and they have no evading, they don't even know what those things mean. So, you know, on how are we going to encourage people to get involved if they don't even know what they're getting involved with because they don't know what the rules and are. And also, if the objective of the rules is to prevent people from doing it, there's a huge failure in the fact that they don't know that they yeah, shouldn't be doing it. they don't it, even right? know so, what it so is. Just, yeah, and that, that um, fascinating. Yeah. So if people want to get in contact with you, uh, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? So I'm on Twitter. Um, you're welcome to do it that way. I can link to it. Yeah, at Kelsley777. Yeah. And then also email, I'm always on that. So k.erickson at leadsbeckett.ac.uk and you can link them to that. But yeah, I'd be happy to take any questions and uh, any comments or whatever. And so we're actively working on the, the React side of developing that. And our next step is to deliver it to athlete support personnel. So we're creating a, a bottom-up, top-down approach where that culture is reciprocal. And we know that the administrators are going to support us. And we know that as athletes, we're going to support one another. And so we've got that piece of it. And on the whistleblowing side, uh, we are about to launch a survey uh, across the US and UK to get gather wider views of cool. the issue of whistleblowing. Do, we, do you want us to promote it or promote it? Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we'll send that out. We're, we're shaping it up based off the evidence that we've gathered already. So it's almost ready to go. And then the final piece will be creating evidence and form um, whistleblowing policy framework. Um, so yeah, there's kind of lots of things going yeah. on in that space, but that's great. And uh, uh, yeah, I, um, I'm, this will probably go out after the interview with Tony uh, from Wilder, but you know, I think the education doesn't get anywhere near enough 
money basically or support or even if money's not even the issue I don't think half the time I just think it's the recognition yeah. in a sense and I think it's the point you're saying is everyone's so reactive and I understand why but sometimes we look back and actually think that you know, genuine education and genuine and we talked about it you said it earlier like genuine stakeholder engagement yep. it's super difficult uh, it really is difficult with all yep. the people disparate and they're, they're, they're changing agendas but if you do it well the rewards can actually save you time money um, and a lot of heartache in the, in the long run. Absolutely. And, and that's been the, like, I've enjoyed that so much of actually being in there and having these conversations with athletes and they're going, actually, you know, part of, part of this, I think one of the real strengths of the program is that we just, I'll give them a scenario and we'll just discuss it. And sometimes they'll be like, and I've had this where I had one, a whole team in the group and one, one kid was like, I wouldn't do anything in that situation, blah, blah, blah. Here's why. And his teammate literally turned to him and was like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm of course you need to do something. And then we just had a conversation amongst the team of like, this is how I feel. This is how I feel. And, and it's just creating that space to have that conversation. And what's unique about the program is that we're evaluating it for impact. And that's where we haven't had, we haven't seen much of that to date is actually what is the impact of this program. So not just, we think we've created something really great. Uh, we've had some people participate. And so that's great. No, actually like we need evidence that this is having change and here's where. And how do you measure the impact? That's interesting. So we've created a bespoke measurement tool and we're going to refine it now for the next one. But part of it is just, well, actually it's not really about knowledge. It's about, we've adapted some, um, validated surveys that again, bearing in mind, there's no research in anti-doping in this space, but we've adapted them into the context of, from the athlete's perspective, there is a validated confrontation doping confrontation scale for coaches. So we've used that. And then we're looking at intentions and then we give them scenarios as well and see what would you do in this one. And we measure pre, post, and three months post right. participation. And how do you adjust for bias within that? Like, we've also got a control group. Right. So okay. we have an active control group who I delivered to. Um, so we've had about 300 in each of the two mm-hmm. arms. And the active control group essentially gets the standard anti-doping education that there is at the moment of like, here's the rules, regulations, and expectations. And so we're comparing, they get the same evaluation pre-post right. and three okay. months post, and then we're comparing the two groups. Nice. So I'm interested in that because I care about impact. Yeah, well, it's uh, coming out. That the, report goes to the IOC in June. Yeah, because so. this is one of the things that, that, that one of the, the things that, that's enabled us to do what we do here is the fact that we have like private conversations with people. Mm-hmm. And probably, initially, that was just me. Now, Chris and, and I do the same. But uh, I was going out and having and going, what's actually the real problems? Yep. What's the problem for in-house lawyers in particular, and then for athletes? Yeah. You know, what are the real issues you're facing? Um, and then you get them from governing people from governing bodies and stuff like that and then you go oh right this, yeah. this is so what, what, what a lot of the narrative always going around has no resemblance and you just go to a lot of events yep. and I'll turn around to people and go like I still do go to a lot of events and go hey how much of this is an issue for you and they go it's yep. not an issue and you go right okay and from that and then we can look but I haven't quite got the um, the impact yeah, uh, it's it's difficult. That. And I think there's various... I mean, the other way that we're doing it is I'll interview. I invite people to share their feedback more formally um, at the end. So I've had, you know, some athletes do that, some of the support personnel. And then some of it's just about feasibility. Mm-hmm. You know, like we... It was really hard to recruit at the beginning. And then we made some changes based on what stakeholders told us. And now... And, and part of it's observation because I've delivered every session. So I'm able to be there to hear the conversation, mm-hmm. to record that down. They, some of it's anecdotal where they are going through those scenarios and they'll jot it down on paper. I've never asked, but inevitably the majority of them leave that paper behind. So I've got hundreds of pages of responses of this scenario. And, and so we have the evidence of like, they're really thinking about this. And like one of my favorite ones is in this situation, you know, the guy, the response of what would you do? And he was like, I'd kick the guy in the face. It's like, oh, okay, great. No, but then underneath yeah. it, it's like, and this is why. And it was like, because this is these are the rules, blah, 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 blah. And so you see them starting to think. And for me, that's that's the impact that we're looking to have is are they really thinking about this? And then the challenge was documenting it, but we found a tool and we're refining it. And and a lot of it is just following up. Mm, super interesting. Well, a whole month, I just, just probably think of a whole bunch of other <laughs> questions, but I'll leave it there. For, for, for the I can time. come back sometime. But, but no, awesome. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. You're really very welcome. Lovely speaking with you.